Thank you, David, for reading. Uh, keep your Bibles open there at Luke chapter 12, if you've got them or if you've got your handbooks with you. Uh, you might want that open to be able to write some notes. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be with you. My name's Ken. I'm, as Grace said, the newest pastor here at WBC. Um, and can I add my warm welcome to you, especially if you're a visitor with us this morning. It's great to be with all of you. Uh, as we continue our series in chapters 10 to 12 of the Gospel of Luke. Over the last few weeks, we've seen that on his journey to Jerusalem, Jesus has been unrelenting in calling out beliefs and behaviours that are incompatible with those who are members of the Kingdom of God. And this morning we're in for another lesson from Jesus, this time on the issue of greed. Now, if you are a visitor today, and let me assure you that we don't uh, often talk about money or greed at WBC, but as it comes up in the passages that we're studying, we don't shy away from it either. So will you join with me uh, in praying, asking God to enable us to hear what he's saying and for his grace to enable us to respond appropriately. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to meet together like this, to have your word in a language that we can easily understand. And yet we recognise our dependence on you. We need you if we're going to really understand what it means. And so as we take this time now, would you work in us by your Holy Spirit to enable us to understand what these words mean? And even more than that, that you'd pour out your grace upon us that we would be enabled to respond appropriately. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. When I was a primary school student, one of my teachers, Mr. Wiggum, sent my class a maths exam. He handed out the papers to all of us face down and told us that we would have just one minute to complete the exam. He went on to say something about reading the instructions, but I was stuck on this issue of one minute, 60 seconds to complete an exam. How was I going to do this? We all turned over our papers. It was one very full page. There must have been at least 50 questions on the paper. It did have a list of instructions at the top, as Mr Wiggum had said something about. But with no time to waste reading, I scribbled my name in the top right-hand corner, as always, and set out to do as many questions as I possibly could. A few others around me were fiddling with their papers. <laughs> Time waste, as I chuckled to myself, as I knocked off yet another question. Furiously racing through the answers, I was confident that my mathematical ability would at least get me further through the list than many of my competitors. Oh, I mean classmates. Pencils down. That includes you, Mr Davies as my sneaky attempt to squeeze in one last answer didn't evade Mr Wiggum's keen eye. I hadn't finished even half of the questions, but surely I'd done better than most, I consoled myself. And then Mr Wiggum made his point. Without even collecting our papers, he slowly read out the full set of instructions, instructions that I'd skipped over as irrelevant to the task. Instructions that now sat staring me in the face. Instruction number one, write your name upside down 
in the bottom left-hand corner of the paper. Oh, no. Instruction number two, answer only question 27. Instruction number three, the answer to question 27 is four. I'd been tricked. This wasn't a maths test at all. And in my rush to do what I assumed was most important, I had completely missed the only thing that mattered. In hindsight, my teacher's point was clear. So clear, in fact, that around four decades later, I still remember it like it was yesterday. Follow the instructions. In our passage this morning, I think that something very similar is going on. Jesus gives us instructions about what life is all about. He states them simply and clearly right up front. What is the only thing in life that matters? Or how do we win at life? It's been called the million dollar question. But in contrast to one of the most important, most common beliefs of our time, Jesus states that life will not be won by accumulating possessions, by collecting stuff. He's actually giving an incredibly strong warning against greed, something that he knows that we're all in danger of. As the start of a fencing duel begins with on guard, so Jesus warns anyone who will listen, be on guard against greed. But I'm getting ahead of myself again, aren't I? I've already given Jesus' answer to the big question without having looked at how he gets there. The passage that we've just heard read can be divided into two parts. In verses 13 to 21, Jesus talks primarily to the crowd. And then in verses 22 to 34, Jesus talks primarily to his disciples. This distinction of who Jesus is talking to is often highlighted by Luke. Luke makes a big deal of it. As we saw last week, so many people were crowding around Jesus that they were trampling over one another to get to him. Jesus attracted huge numbers of people, keen to listen, eager to see a miracle, desperate to experience a healing or at least to observe one take place. And it's a man from within this eager to listen, but not always so quick to obey crowd, that triggers this episode with his request. Verse 13, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, sadly, there's nothing like a funeral to bring out family disputes. But what has led to this particular breakdown between brothers? Was there something unfair in the will? had their last remaining parent died without leaving a will. From the information we're given, there's no way to tell the validity of this man's claim, if he actually needs the money or why he thought that Jesus should give a judgment on this matter. And yet, despite any potential justification of his request, Jesus, in response, exposes his underlying issue of greed. Over the last two weeks, we've seen that Jesus has repeatedly pointed out the Pharisees' faults. Chapter 11, verse 39. You Pharisees are full of greed and wickedness. Chapter 12, verse 1. Be on your guard 
against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Back in chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus approved the summary that life is all about loving God and loving our neighbours. But the Pharisees, with their rules and regulations, were doing and demanding the opposite of God's instructions. They loved themselves instead of God, and they made life burdensome for their neighbours. Though looked up to by their society, the Pharisees did not impress God. And Jesus knew that this request of this unnamed man revealed that he too was in danger of making their same mistake. Rather than being motivated by love for God and love for neighbour, like a Pharisee, he had perhaps already put self-love first. And what's more, Jesus knows that this is not an isolated problem. Verse 15, then he said to them, that is, he said to the crowd, and no doubt to the listening disciples too, watch out, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So the t-shirt is wrong. He who dies with the most toys does not win. And so like I said, Jesus explicitly states the answer up front. How do I win at life? Well, it's not by accumulating stuff. Now, his point is pretty clear already, but to push the point further, Jesus tells a story. A rich farmer has a windfall. Now, we all know that good endings like this always have a background. This is not merely good luck. How many early morning starts and sleepless nights had this rich farmer poured into his property? Had he struggled through years of drought, invested in soil improvement and set up irrigation in order to become rich? Well, we have no idea. But things go so well, verse 16, that he's left with a good problem. So much has his land produced that his existing grain silos are too small to store the harvest. And so he asks himself, which is always a danger in the Gospel of Luke, he asks himself, what am I going to do with all of this produce? And he's quick to answer his own question. Verses 18 and 19. I know what I'll do. I'll make enough space so that I can keep everything that I've got. My hard work has finally paid off. So if I just do this, life will be cruisy for me from now on. And God says to him, you fool. But with what tone does God say it? Is it the angry, you fool? Or as I've become convinced of reading it this week, is it, is it a sad, almost a, a pitiful, you fool? So this is one of those words that doesn't translate well into English. A fool, verse 20, to us is someone unintelligent, someone reckless. Fools don't think about consequences. They act stupidly. They ride their motorbikes without helmets up and down our streets. But a fool, from its Old Testament usage, is primarily about leaving God out of life. They're not a fool because they have a low IQ, but because they live life as if God's not there. A fool can actually be an incredibly smart person. In fact, when a fool is faced with a problem... 
they very well may be the one who considers the financial cost, the time commitment, possibly even the environmental impact. But they leave out the most important factor of all, God. They never ask, what would God have me do? They rush ahead, doing what they assume is most important, never stopping to ask what the creator of life says is most important. And in response, God says to this fortunate farmer, time's up. Pencils down, hand in your exam. Because he leaves God out of his life, his life is demanded from him. He's had his whole life to love God and to love his neighbour. But sadly, the result is obvious before God even marks his paper. The farmer has failed. A death triggers the original request. And now death, within Jesus' parable, underlines the main point of this first section. To die focused on oneself, to have spent all of life merely accumulating possessions, is to die missing the whole point of life. Like the famous pharaohs of Egypt, they've amassed a treasure trove intent on setting themselves up for this life, even the life after death. But ignoring Jesus' instructions, they haven't put anything away for eternity, which may appear like a pretty tough judgment. To have let the fruit of his hard work just rot in the field would have been ungodly stewardship and no doubt an environmental hazard as well. It makes sense that he couldn't just give away the extra. That would be reckless. And yet the repeated I, I, my of his response reveals that he really is a fool in the biblical sense of the word. He never paused for even a moment to ask what God would have him do. He never stopped to reflect that this bumper crop was a gift from God, not simply evidence of his agricultural excellence or his business brilliance. He lived life as if he was in control, as if he determined the future, as if life was all about him. And therefore, his life goal was wrong. Life is not all about us. And Jesus goes on to say that this judgment is not reserved merely for making points in parables. Verse 21. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. With whoever. And so the sting in the tail, at least for the crowd, is surely the question, are we rich towards ourselves or are we rich, are we rich towards God? Verse 15's already made it clear that this is not merely about money. We may not have a clue what our bank balance is, but that doesn't mean that we don't get this wrong in other areas of our life. In fact, to be rich towards someone may not involve a financial transaction at all. Our greed is very happy to hide away in harder to see areas. For example, are we generous with our time? Life seems to get busier and busier by the moment which means it can be easier to give money than our attention. By wasting big chunks of time with friends, with family, with our neighbours, maybe the wisest investment that we can make today. And I'm not even a financial advisor. 
What about being rich towards others with our words? Do we hog conversations, making them all about us? Or do we show genuine concern for the other? Building others up doesn't need to cost a cent, but it does require us to take the focus off ourselves and put it firmly on the other. And so then when we do evaluate our use of money, what does it look like to be rich towards God? Does it mean giving 10% of my income before rather than after tax? Does it mean that I'll drink instant coffee instead of the good stuff so that I can put a bit more of my money in the bags on Sunday morning? Or do questions about how much of my money I'll give to God miss the whole point? My assumption that it's my money for me to do with as I decide reveals that I actually have the same problem as the fortunate farmer. It's not mine. I'm simply a manager of what belongs to God. It's a stinging rebuke when directed to the crowd, which may seem really harsh, especially when we realise that Jesus' words are triggered by a grieving man, his last parent's death has led to this request. And yet, while they seem to be keen to be around Jesus, the crowd is not moving their reliance off of themselves and onto God. Their focus remains firmly fixed on themselves rather than shifting onto others. Jesus' words are entering their ears, but it's not bringing about any change in their hearts. And therefore, the biggest need of the crowd is to stop trusting themselves and to begin trusting God. If this morning you realise that you are one of the crowd, then understand that Jesus doesn't want your money. He wants a relationship with you. He wants you to understand that your security cannot be found in anything other than him. But for us, who have already been following Jesus for some time, there's a different application. And in verse 22, the attention shifts to Jesus' disciples. And with that, Jesus modifies his tone, beginning by saying, don't worry. The stern warning has become the comforting encouragement. Greed remains a danger for us who have already begun following Jesus because we can easily be caught in old patterns of thinking. Because we've grown up thinking that life is all about collecting, our habits won't change overnight. And so to win at life, we first need to relearn what life is all about, which begins with understanding the gracious provision of God. Jesus tenderly reminds his disciples that they don't need to worry because God is a generous father. The fortunate farmer looks out for himself, but you, you are looked out for by God himself. You don't need to stress out about your physical needs. Look at the common ravens, verse 24. Don't you know that you're more valuable to God than a bird? Now, it's very easy to nod in approval of this truth. But life can make it very hard to live out day by day. The never-ending rising cost of living means that we do need to plan for our future. In other teaching, Jesus makes it clear that he does expect us 
to be wise with the resources that he gives us. But when does my planning reveal a lack of trust in God? At least a part of the answer is in what motivates our planning. Does our planning signal our self-reliance? Or does it demonstrate our dependence upon God? That's going to take some sober self-reflection and a bunch of time if we are going to answer it honestly. But an easier test is given to us in verse 25 and 26. Ask the question of yourselves, do you worry? Way ahead of his time, Jesus points out the truth about worry. While most of us are, are quite proficient at worrying, it actually has the opposite effect from what we intend by it. We all want good things to happen in the future. We worry because we don't believe that God is going to provide them. And 2,000 years later, scientists are starting to catch up with Jesus. Scientists can now describe in minute detail the, the physical and chemical processes by which worry, high blood pressure, anxiety and working too many hours are speeding up our death. The outcome alone should tell us that worry is a waste of time. But Jesus goes on to draw out the even more important implications. You are incapable of extending your life by worrying. So why, verse 26, do you put so much effort into something that doesn't work? You've got to remember that Jesus isn't scolding his followers. He's revealing to them a vital truth that the fortunate farmer had overlooked. God provides for his beloved children. So don't worry. Trust God. In verses 27 and 28, Jesus further develops this idea by tweaking the metaphor. Wildflowers are spectacular. Yet even Solomon, proverbial for his wealth and splendour, was less well-dressed than a single wildflower. Grass likewise grows without any effort from anyone. No farmer has to go and seed his hills. It pops up seemingly all by itself. And yet, just days later, grass is worthless rubbish to be burnt. If God spectacularly clothes the short-lived wildflowers, can't he arrange for you to have all the clothes that you need? You of little faith, verse 28 calls us. See, the problem is not with the ability of God to provide. He does provide what we need, often far in excess of what we need. We need to trust him to provide. Jesus has already made this point, if we were listening, as he taught in chapter 11, verse 3, we should pray, give us this day, give us each day, our daily bread. Now, I don't know about you, but I tend to ask for a month in advance. But we are meant to express our moment-by-moment -moment dependence on the supremely capable God, our generous Father. And yet how often do we find that we've turned from patient dependence on God back to our own feeble efforts. Food and drink likewise, verse 29. Your father knows what you need and he's only too happy to provide it. So stop acting like those that don't even know that there is a loving God, let alone rely on him as their father, verse 30. It makes sense for them to try to provide for themselves. Who else is going to do it? But we 
We believe in a Father who knows our every need and has promised to provide it. So trust him, not yourself. It's easy to say, but what does trusting God look like in real life? The first time that Christy and I went to Bangkok, we saw university students walking around and around this jetty in the middle of the university campus. We were told that they did this because there's a folk Buddhist belief that if they walked around it enough times, then they would go well in their exams. Now, I wondered to myself whether they would have been spending, better off spending that same time studying in the library. But then as followers of Jesus, don't we pray for him to provide for our needs? Does trust mean that we just sit back then and wait for it to be dumped in our lap? Sometimes he does provide miraculously. But perhaps even more often, he answers through providing that extra shift. Or enabling us to recognise that something is a want rather than a need. His answer to our prayer may even require us to put in that application for that new job. So trusting God doesn't mean passivity, but neither is it independence. And my guess is that the tightrope doesn't ever get any easier. There will always be a pull to either trust ourselves or to impatiently demand our desires from God. Up until this point, Jesus has focused on what not to do. Don't be greedy. Don't make plans that ignore God. Don't be self-focused. Don't worry. Stop stressing about food and clothes. All of these forbidden behaviours come naturally to each one of us. And so we must rein them in, must be on guard to prevent them. But we don't just avoid the wrong we must replace it with the right. And so in verse 31, Jesus turns to what we should do in place of greed and worry. Seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Seek his kingdom. With this statement, Jesus reveals that life is first and foremost about the kingdom of God. If you want to win at life, you have to have God's kingdom as your number one priority. Now, we all make choices regarding what is our most valued treasure. And I assume that you've all heard the story already of how they catch monkeys. You stick peanuts into a jar, fastened to a tree, and the monkey puts its arm into the jar, grabbing hold of the peanuts and instantly traps itself. Now, it could just let go and instantly be free but its unbroken grasp on something so insignificant traps it. It chooses peanuts over its own freedom. It's crazy. And yet I think that the biggest mistake that many followers of Jesus make is to believe that we can focus on both possession accumulation and kingdom expansion. And so we hedge our bets. We commit some resources to one and some resources to the other. But Jesus is warning us that we can't seek both. If we focus on one, the other inevitably goes out of focus. And yet again at this point, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus 
is tenderly encouraging his followers to understand what will enable them to win at life. Jesus is not here opposed to wealth. He's opposing the misuse of wealth. Wealth can be a blessing. It is what it is in the Old Testament. But it can also be a dangerous trap if it is not used for the kingdom. The twist in verse 31 is that if we do prioritise his kingdom, God provides our needs as a bonus. Focus on the wrong one, we end up with neither. Focus on the right one, he gives us the lesser as a gift. It's like the widow in 1 Kings chapter 17. Elijah tells her to make him some bread from the meagre resources she's left, giving him the first part. Because she obeys, her flour and oil don't run out. Now, if she'd said no, if she'd prioritised herself and her son, which was the logical thing to do in the situation, she would have soon died. But because she submits to God's instructions, she lives. The issue for us is how do we get our focus right? How do we seek his kingdom? The kingdom of God in Luke's gospel refers to a lot of things, but here I think the emphasis is on submitting to Jesus as the king of the kingdom. The Pharisees, the experts in the law, even the crowd had their own opinions on how they could live for God. But when Jesus speaks, it is not simply another opinion thrown into the mix. His is the authoritative final word of the king. His teachings are the instructions from the one who is going to mark the test. And so to seek God's kingdom is to follow the instructions of the king of the kingdom. In the words of chapter 11, verse 28, to hear the word of God and obey it. And as the king, Jesus can now require what would otherwise be an outrageous demand. Verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. If you're familiar with Christian biographies, you'll know that some have taken this command literally. C.T. Studd, George Mueller, Gladys Alward. They considered the things of this world of no value compared to the possibility of more people being brought into the kingdom of God. And from one perspective, they got it right. And yet Paul, the Apostle Paul, will warn us that even then, the outcome doesn't depend on money or a lack of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor, give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. See, salvation is by grace, not by poverty. And so the final words of our verses sum all of this up as a heart issue. Verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We've all heard the saying, but often we still get the cart before the horse. So look carefully again at what is the horse and what is the cart here. The heart 
is inevitably drawn to where the treasure already is. It may take some time to get there, but if we treasure earthly things, our heart will end up there too. If we treasure power or influence, our heart will inevitably follow along. If pleasure is our ultimate goal, our heart will finally get in tune. But if the kingdom of God is the most important thing in the world to us, then it will change the whole course of our lives. Whatever we value most will have our heart. For those of you who are familiar with the Lord of the Rings, you remember well the character Schmagel or Gollum. He's a disgusting-looking creature, I'm sure you'll all agree, twisted and contorted in every possible way by a controlling love for a ring that he calls his precious, my precious. So Schmagel eats, he sleeps, but it's plain to all that life is actually all about getting back his precious. And Jesus warns us that that is our danger too. Like Gollum, we too can end up warped and twisted. We become far less than we were created to be unless the kingdom of God is the one thing that we are driven by. We all still need to eat we need to buy clothes. We need cars and houses to live in 2019 Australia. It can be a godly use of money to take your family on a holiday, to buy rather than rent, to take your wife out for a nice meal. But when anything begins to compete with the kingdom of God as the goal of life, it's already become a problem. Only when God is our treasure does everything else in life find its rightful place? How do we win at life? I think in practice most of us are in danger of being caught up in a devious trap far more sinister than Mr Wiggum's. The deceiver has convinced societies all over the world that to win, our number one priority in life is to accumulate all we can. You've only got 80 or perhaps 90 years to, compete, to complete it. So get busy, people. And in our rush to do what we assume is most important, we accept that to win at life, we must have as much as those around us, if not just a little bit more. Sometimes we do get part of Jesus' message. We sacrifice our needs to set up our kids or grandkids to be able to have even more than we had. And yet if we listen carefully to Jesus' instructions, even that is missing the point. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So relax in the confident knowledge that he is our generous provider. Be freed to seek his kingdom rather than our own. On guard, people. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you love us so much that you're willing to warn us in the midst of greed, in the midst of busyness, in the midst of grief, that life does not ultimately uh, exist in the uh, having an abundance of possessions. 
And so we pray that you would give us wisdom to reflect carefully on our lives, that we would have your insight into the way that we're living so that we'd understand if there's things that need to change, if there's things that we need to do differently, if there's things that we need to improve. Please free us from greed. greed. Please help us, protect us from falling into that trap. And may we truly trust in you with every part of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.